But I was sitting in my fourth grade classroom and in walks this lady and she's carrying this, it's like a flannel type bulletin board. And then she starts putting these figures on there. They look kind of like religious figures to me. I wasn't really sure. It has this beautiful man with the long flowing hair and the beard like you kind of see in storybooks sometimes. And then she'd show his disciples and she'd show, and here's the sick man and Jesus is going to heal him. And she made us sing, Jesus Loves Me. All the kids around me knew the words to the song. And they were singing, Jesus Loves Me, very lustily. And I didn't know the words. And I really wanted to sink into my chair, kind of into the floor, because it wasn't my religion, and I knew it. And I knew that I wasn't supposed to be singing songs about Jesus in school. This is Linda K. Wertheimer. I'm a journalist, and I'm an author of Faith Ed, teaching about religion in an age of intolerance. And I'm not that other Linda Wertheimer of NPR. Back in the 1970s, when Linda was a little kid... I was nine years old. Her dad was an engineer at a plant that made auto parts in upstate New York. He was working for the spark plug division, and he got transferred to a company in Fostoria, Ohio. And Linda found herself a stranger in a new school. And it turned out that she and her brother were the only Jewish kids in the school. They told their mom about the visit from the church lady. My brother Kevin said something like, and she said the Jews killed Jesus. Um, I told her that, you know, she made us sing songs. She made us tell, you know, she told Bible stories. It was really uncomfortable. We didn't like it. And my mom got really mad about it. And my parents talked about it. They contacted the ACLU first. And the ACLU sent them some pamphlets. I wouldn't have known what this was at not age nine, but <laughs> we talked about this later. It violated the separation of church and state. Our school was clearly promoting one religion in the classroom. And they debated about whether they would pursue it with the ACLU because they knew it was wrong. And they decided not to do anything with the ACLU because they were afraid of my dad being affected at work, of things being getting bad for us at school because I think they were getting a sense that this was a very small town. Um, they told me that I think that week the KKK had burned a cross on a black family's lawn. So this town we moved into wasn't coming across as such an open-minded area. So they were really fearful of what could happen if we were sort of publicly identified as the Jewish family that opposes this church program. So instead, they went to talk to the superintendent to see, well, is there at least something you can do for my two kids? And what they said was, well, we can excuse your kids from the program. And that was the solution. So all through fourth, fifth, and sixth grade, Linda left her classroom for half an hour each week during the visit from the church lady. And initially, I was sent to a small room. It was kind of like the size of a supply closet, and I can still remember it. It kind of smelled like chalk. And I, started, kind of compl- I went home and I complained to my mom. I said, they're sending me to this really tiny, awful room. And so my mom said something and I got to go to the library. I have such a clear image of leaving that classroom and kind of feeling like everyone's eyes were on my back as I walked out of the classroom. You had this experience in the public school system in your community in Ohio. Yeah. So why so many years later are you coming back to this? What motivated you to, to, to look back at this? Okay, because I always wanted to know, was this anti-Semitism that I experienced or was it really just ignorance? You know, was, was it the fact that my peers just didn't know about other religions and that the people in the community didn't understand enough about other faiths? You know, at first I blamed the kids and then I later realized, no, it really just had nothing to do with the kids. It was the adults and the decisions they made. 
I think they were fully aware that they were in violation of the law, no question. And I think they were going to keep doing what they were doing until someone objected. And how do you know that? Because I went back and I found the church lady. This is Us and Them from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. It's the podcast where we tell stories from America's cultural divides. I'm Trey Kay. Today we're talking about religion in the schools. Public schools are supposed to steer clear of organized religion. That's been true since the early 1960s. Back then, the Supreme Court issued a couple of rulings that said it was unconstitutional to have organized prayer and Bible readings in the public schools. Even before then, in 1948, the court said classes like the one the church lady taught were not legal in the public schools. But before the court weighed in, some public schools welcomed preachers and priests and even rabbis into classrooms. They called it weekday religious education. And here's something that might surprise you. Back in the day, conservatives and liberals supported religious education in schools. And here's another surprise. Weekday religious education lived on after the Supreme Court rulings. A version of it is still going on today. Linda Wertheimer went back to Ohio looking for the church lady, and she found her. Her name's Dorothy Powell, and she was still teaching. This is a recording Linda made of kids singing in one of Dorothy's classes. After class, they talked. So, Dorothy, I wanted to ask you some questions about... So this is my interview with Dorothy Powell in March 2013. Linda was working on a book about religious education in schools. The recording she made isn't quite radio quality, but she played it for me on her computer and helped me decipher what people were saying. I interviewed her at a church in Arlington, Ohio, and it was in between classes that she was teaching. Um, she was teaching the same kind of classes she taught in the 70s to early 80s, um, but now she was teaching them in a classroom in a church across from the Arlington Public Schools. Linda interviewed Dorothy and one of Dorothy's colleagues. She didn't mention right away that she'd been the Jewish kid in one of Dorothy's classes years ago. First, she says she had some questions. Why? It was there the need to have these classes in the schools in the first place? That's what I wanted to know. Why? why? <laughs> and what they were saying was because a number of kids weren't going to church. And so, you know, they felt they needed to fill the need because you, you have to have the kids church. They have to have values. To them, it was about values, instilling and values, Christian, good Christian values. Well, what about the kids your parents gave them because either they didn't think this was the right thing to do in school? I'm asking her if she was aware of the kids who left. Is she aware of the kids who were excused? And then I'm like, well, but what about the kids who didn't go because they were a different religion? You know, like maybe they were, I didn't, I don't think I said Jewish. I said just because they were a different religion. What do you think of how things might have been for them? And she goes, well, I don't think they were treated badly or anything. Did she seem defensive or? No, no, she didn't seem defensive, but she seemed like matter of fact about it. I mean, I'm not sure she'd ever really thought about it. That's what was kind of occurring to me. You know, I had spent the last 40 years of my life <laughs> with this in the back of my head. I don't think she ever really thought about those kids who weren't there. Those weren't the kids sitting in front of her. At one point in the recording, you can hear Linda say, I'm going to tell you a little story, okay? I want to tell you a little story, okay? So I'm Jewish. 
And she tells Dorothy about being in her class all those years ago and feeling excluded and having to go to the library each week when Dorothy came to teach. And she also tells Dorothy about what happened outside of her class, things that happened after the people in the town heard the Wertheimers were Jewish. There was the swastika graffiti on their house and their car. And there were the hateful whispers from a high school classmate who was sitting behind Linda during a history lesson on the Holocaust. She said she was sorry about that. And she says she's ashamed of the kid. You know, she's ashamed that the kids treated me that way. Her reaction is all about how the kids treated me, not that this class was the, at the, the issue. <laughs> and she said, well, I taught them that the Jews were the chosen people. So, so therefore, they should be nice to the Jews. And she's saying that kind of thing. And I'm not, I'm not like upset as I'm listening to this. And I'm realizing this is her frame of reference. It was in the 1970s when Linda Wertheimer first encountered the church lady, but programs that brought religion into public school classrooms had been going on since the early part of the last century. Weekday Religious Education, or WRE, started in the early 1920s, but it really picked up steam during World War II. Prayer in school had some champions we might find surprising today. Lots of people on the left wanted religion and prayer and sacrament in school. I learned about this from my friend Jonathan Zimmerman. He's an education historian at New York University, and he wrote about WRE in his book, Who's America? Culture Wars in the Public Schools. He says that people trying to get religion in public schools weren't from conservative groups like the Moral Majority or Christian Coalition or Focus on the Family. Those groups didn't even exist back then. WRE was promoted in the South by um, pacifists and anti-racists. So I found this amazing testament from a school teacher in North Carolina in 1943 named Louise Bashford, in which she says, the reason we need uh, um, uh, religious teaching in schools, weekday religious education, is we have to teach that Christ was the Prince of Peace. Remember, this is 43, this is wartime. And also, by the way, we have to teach that Christ doesn't see color. And again, that reminds us about the way that religion was absolutely central to the civil rights appeal. And people wanted to use schools to promote religion as a way of reinforcing that appeal. Now, let me be clear, not everybody did. And one of the fascinating stories about WRE and about the, the teaching of religion in school is how many different religious communities tried to seize on it. So if you look at the burgeoning evangelical movement in the 40s and 50s, they too try to get in on weekday religious education, but they teach a very different set of messages. And what they say is, we shouldn't be using the Bible to teach about the evils of race or of racism or Jim Crow. Um, we should be using it to bring every child to Jesus. Because the Bible says if you don't have that, you're going to hell. For most of America's history, kids prayed and read the Bible in school. But in 1962 and 63, the Supreme Court issued two landmark rulings saying schools could not require students to participate in Bible readings or prayers. The first case came from New York and the second from Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania, schools were required by law to begin each day with Bible readings. Kids could be excused if they had a written note from their parents. The Supreme Court said the law violated the First Amendment, which forbids government from establishing a state religion. The case was called Abington School District versus Shemp. The Shemp decision has been characterized as forbidding prayer in school, 
But John Zimmerman says that's not what it said. You can pray whenever you want in school. And as far as Bible reading goes, the Shemp case about Bible reading specifically said Justice Clark's decision, nothing in this decision prevents you from reading the Bible in school. In fact, we think every educated person should read the Bible and know what it says. Um, what the decision says isn't you can't read the Bible in school, but rather teacher can't lead kids in a ritual in worship from the Bible, which is different from saying you can't read the Bible. It's an important distinction. Still, Zimmerman says the pair of cases shocked the country. It wasn't that, oh, we can't pray anymore because people kept praying, including in school. It was the symbolic fact that the state was now saying that the school couldn't sponsor this. That's what outraged so many people. That is a, that is a watershed. The state, which had been pro-religion, was now officially neutral on religion. And that was an enormous, enormous change in the way that Americans thought and lived. To me, when I hear somebody say they took the Bible out of the school, I think that the implication is they've taken morality out of the school. They've taken the foundation of our society and pretty much what is going to be left is that the devil is going to get the hindmost and that, that, that our kids are going to be corrupted and, and go on a slippery slope to hell. Is that, is that, is that what the implication that you hear is? Yeah, and, and, and I think that um, you know, whether you agree with that or not, I think there's some historical truth to it insofar as um, conservatives are right where they say that across most of our history we did pray in schools. Uh, and we did read the Bible for sacramental reasons. Um, and if you're somebody that believes that all morality is rooted in Scripture or in religion, um, I can understand why you would think that if we remove those sacraments from the school, that we'll remove morality as well. I think there is a logic there. Some religious conservatives believe there have been some ugly consequences from the court decisions removing organized prayer and religious instruction from schools. They believe things started to go downhill in America right away. You know, you get into 64 and 65, and now you have riots in American cities. I mean, we often think of riots as beginning in the late 60s, but they didn't. There were big riots in Harlem and in Philadelphia in 64, and then obviously in 65 you have the Watts riots. More than 100 square blocks were decimated by fire and looters, and few buildings were left intact. What that does is it feeds, it feeds a sense on the part of a lot of Americans that there's chaos and disorder. And as you were indicating earlier, what you find is, you know, people turning to these school prayer decisions and saying, well, there's a causal arrow here. Just to be clear, I'm not saying that we had riots in the streets because the Bible was taken out of schools. And incidentally, let me emphasize the Bible, even as, as, as a... Um, a document of prayer was not taken out of the schools. One of the other things I've documented in my work is the different ways that school districts found their way around these decisions. So, for example, the football prayer, the team prayer, um, that is a, 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 an artifact of the mid-60s. It was an effort to, and they use this verb, bootleg religion into schools, which is, of course, a football term as well, right? Team prayer begins as an explicit and admitted effort to um, get around these decisions by creating another venue for prayer. So it's not in the classroom, but okay, it's, it's on the football field. Um, are, there, so, are there other, are there other uh, workarounds, bootlegs? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Courses in the Bible. 
See, um, Justice Clark had explicitly said in the Kemp case, nothing we're saying prevents you from teaching the Bible. So a lot of conservatives picked up on that and started teaching Bible courses that were, when we look at them closely, very clearly efforts to evangelize and proselytize, right? Which, of course, is what the court said you can't do. Right? It said you can read the Bible in school and you can teach about it, but you can't use the Bible to evangelize and proselytize. But a lot of these Bible courses absolutely did. What do you think was the legacy of the, of the Supreme Court decisions in 62 and 63? The legacy has to do with our politics, with the structure and the content of our politics. I think the real legacy is in the wake of these decisions, a lot of people on the left who had invoked religion routinely and ritualistically as a part of their political program stopped doing so. And conservatives started doing so. So let's take a figure like Gary Falwell. When Martin Luther King was doing a lot of his freedom rallies in the 60s, Falwell, who was a preacher in Lynchburg, Virginia, said with respect to people like King that preachers should get out of the streets and get back in the pulpits. Right? Your job is not to change the world here and now. Your job is to prepare us for the world hereafter. Okay? Well, by the early 70s, and especially by Roe v. Wade, which is what Falwell says radicalized him, we see these conservative religionists come into the public sphere in a huge way, saying that their faith has brought them into the public sphere and they want to infuse the public sphere with their faith. But what you see on the left is something the opposite happening. Um, uh, which is um, people are much less inclined to invoke God and religion in their language and in their rhetoric than they did before these prayer decisions. The prayer decisions aren't the only thing that made a difference, but I do think they were critical in starting to change the, the structure of our politics with respect to religion. So there's been a push from the left to get religion out of public life, and a lot of Americans resent it. In a Pew poll a few years ago, 69% of Americans agreed with the statement, liberals have gone too far trying to keep religion out of the schools and the government. Last year, a Gallup poll found that 61% of Americans think there should be daily prayer in school. And in spite of the court rulings, people who want kids to get religious instruction during the school day have found a way to make it happen. And uh, this is a letter from one of the superintendents to me. I recently visited with Paul Humber, who is the director of CR Ministries. His group organizes Christian release time education programs in Philadelphia. If a parent wants his child or her child to participate in religious education, now it's off campus. Uh, and it's sponsored, uh, the church uh, people uh, teach the children and so on, uh, So and they escort them away from the building and bring them back, and uh, maybe in time for dismissal, and uh, it's just one hour a week for roughly 36 weeks of the school year, at least in Pennsylvania, that's the mandated law. Mandated again, meaning that, you know, if the parent wants it, they, they should be able to get it for their children. Why is it that we need to provide children with the option of religious education in their school day? Well, some parents don't have the financial resources to send their uh, children to a uh, Christian school or even a private school. But children in public school need to hear about their maker and the wonderful offer of the gospel. And uh, if parents can't send their children to another school, they're sort of in a bind. 
then we want to provide an opportunity for those children. Do you want to reach children whose parents are not religious? We not only would like to reach the children of parents who are not religious, we would be happy to meet with the parents themselves and, and to try to help them to, to appreciate the, the wonderful uh, message of salvation. I realize, having said that, there are many people that scorn uh, any effort to evangelize or whatever, you know, I'm fine, but they all face death. And there is only one religious leader that has conquered death, and that is Jesus Christ, who came alive again three days later and offers eternal life to anyone who had put faith in him. And, and again, this is um, religious education that is not just Christian. It, it could be Muslim or Jew, Judaism, any type of religious education. It's just that it has to be off of the school campus, correct? Yes. For our efforts, Christian Release Time, we uh, consistently try to have them away from the campus and, and so on, and there's no uh, uh, restriction in terms of what is taught and that kind of thing. And it's been a very uh, uh, happy experience. Why does it need to be in the middle of the school day? Why couldn't it be after school? Or, or why couldn't this instruction happen at church on Sunday or in Sunday school? The people that put the laws together realize that one hour a week in, compar in comparison to five full days of school, uh, it's, it's hard to counterbalance. It's, there's an imbalance there, especially if they're learning that there are accidents in the universe and there's no instruction about uh, uh, who made them. Uh, there is a default religion uh, in the public schools, and that is the religion of secular humanism that uh, essentially man is the measure of all things. And some of these uh, questions like where, what happens at death or how do we get here, it's hard to answer that question. If you're in a dark room and there's zero light and someone has a small match, that match gets a lot of attention. If these kids are in school for 40 hours a week, uh, can't wait till the bell rings so that they can get out, and they can go to a class where they learn that not only were they made by their maker, but that one went to a cross so that they could get to heaven. That is a light in a very dark room, and it's very important. As far as the public schools are concerned, I think that uh, the majority religion, and I use that word intentionally, is secular humanism. That is a religion. It's not science. It's a religion. But, but we're blind to it as a country. We don't realize that this is religion being uh, indoctrinated into the lives of these public school children. And my approach is let's light a, a match or, or a candle. And, uh, you know, because I know the power of the gospel is much greater and, and, and the, than darkness. The light in the match is the release time? The light, the light in the match is Jesus Christ. He said, I am the light of the world. I need to obey Jesus. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. If he says go, that's what, that's what I want to do. And he says go into all the world, and that includes public school children, and I want to do it. I want to take it, make the most of every opportunity. And those children need to learn about Christ. The parents of those children, everybody ought to know who Jesus is.
The United States Supreme Court says it's okay for Paul Humber and other advocates of release time to set up religious instruction during the school day. But these programs get a fair share of criticism. In 2005, Slate Magazine's legal writer, Dahlia Lithwick, wrote an article that summarized some criticisms of a weekday religious education program in Staunton, Virginia. Some parents complained that the children who didn't participate felt ostracized. And parents thought that these classes ate into instruction time. They complained that while many students were off campus learning about the Old Testament and getting a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, those left behind passed the time coloring pictures of SpongeBob. This left-behind experience kind of reminded me of Linda Wertheimer being sent to sit in the supply closet that smelled like chalk. Being the only Jew in her class, getting sent away when the church lady came, that made a big difference in Linda's life. She grew up to be a journalist focusing on education. Her latest big project is a look at how religion is taught in public schools. She's about to release a new book called Faith Ed, teaching about religion in the age of intolerance. In the book, she makes an argument that we need religious education in schools. She says it should be instruction about all different religions. I chose to write it because I just feel so passionately that we have to teach kids about the world's religions as a part of history, as a part of life, as a part of the country we live in, as part of the world we live in. I don't like the Islamophobia that I see spreading across our country. I don't like the fact that anti-Semitism is rising. But it's not just about the Jews. It's not just about the Muslims. It's about Hindus. It's about Sikhs. It's about evangelical Christians, too. We don't understand each other. And, and it puts us at, you know, it puts us at real odds with us. I mean, I, I talk about this a lot, that, you know, religion, when I was in school, it was a line that really divided us, and it didn't have to. You know, there's a lot of similarities between religions and there are differences. And we can teach kids about them and they can then better understand each other and get the message that, you know, it's okay if Linda's Jewish. It's okay if George is atheist. It's okay if this person's Catholic, this person's Protestant, that this person's a Jehovah's Witness. Everybody has a right to be what they want to be. Linda would like to see religion education classes that make every kid feel a part of the group. Not like an ostracized weirdo, the way she felt when the church lady came to visit. She wished she could have made Mrs. Powell understand why the religion class made her feel so bad when she went to see her in Ohio. Linda told me that it wasn't the last time she talked to the church lady. A few months after the interview, Mrs. Powell called her. And she said, I just can't stop thinking about our conversation and, you know, how you described how some of the kids treated you. And I feel so bad. So it seems like you connecting with her affected her, no? Yeah, it, it did. And we've actually talked a few times since. And I think we genuinely liked each other. Um, and I think it made her think. And that's good. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm great with that. This has been Us and Them. We're curious what you think about religion in public schools and what effect it's had on your life. Did you ever have an experience with religion in school that you found upsetting? Or would you have liked to have had more religion in your school or in your kids' school? Log on to Facebook and let us know. Or tweet to at us and them podcast or to me at Trey underscore K.
Our show was written and produced by me, Trey Kay, Lori Stern, Chris Julin, and Catherine Winter. Michael Lipton and Tristan Lozow wrote and performed our show music. Our intern is Sophia Tedesco. Rita Krasoffi and Marina Trofimova built our website at usandthempodcast.com and provide us with images for the web. And Mark Lerner designed our logo. The good people at West Virginia Public Broadcasting make us and them possible. So do grants from the West Virginia Humanities Council and the CRC Foundation. For our next show, America has a long tradition of citizen activism regarding what kids learn in schools. And no one has had a bigger impact than Texans Mel and Norma Gabler. The values which most Americans hold dear have been censored from textbooks. The very values that we need to foster if we want to continue as a moral nation. Why should a, a handful of liberals totally control what's going on in, in our textbooks? Coming up on Us and Them.